Hello and welcome back to The Growing Revolution. I'm Eric Olson with Smart Pot Fabric Planters. And this week, our guests are Will Bowden and Adam Rollinger from Grasshopper Farms in Michigan. They're a licensed producer and growing in full sun using 100-gallon Smart Pots. They're focusing on quality over quantity. And we wanted to see what they were doing to accomplish that. So Will and Adam, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Eric. Thanks. Yep. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. Thanks for making the time. Definitely appreciate it. So um, first, tell us what part of Michigan y'all are in and how long you've been growing for the rec market. Yeah, sure, Eric. So uh, we're in southwest Michigan. We're just outside of Kalamazoo, which is an hour south of Grand Rapids. Um, we've been in the market, so we, we applied in 2020 and our first harvest was in 2021. We've now had two harvests under our belt in the commercial market, but I would be remiss if I didn't say that this team has been growing in Michigan outdoors in full sun for over 12 years. So as we put the team together, while it's our first two commercial harvests, the harvests have been going on for over a decade. Nice, nice. Yeah, great to hear that you guys aren't, you know, just kind of Johnny come lately is that you guys have been um, entrenched in the uh, culture and the industry uh, prior to uh, all the doors being open. So you guys describe your flower as premium sun grown. And as someone who's seen and grown outdoors that can uh, pass for indoors, I know it can be done. So how are you guys doing it? Yeah, so, so I think that when the industry became illegal, you had a lot of folks who went into barns and basements, basically. And it wasn't just decades, but it's actually generations. So we're talking about not our parents, but our grandparents who were growing outside and went inside. And over that time, I, I think the generational knowledge shifted from outdoor farming to indoor growing. And people became very, very good at it, by the way, as well. So when legalization occurred, I think the dynamic that may have happened, and it's just what I think, and Adam can weigh in too, but is that as people started to move back outside, they were applying their very successful indoor grow techniques to outdoor farming and finding that it didn't always translate from either a practice or even sometimes a strain as well. So I think that as this commercial market started evolving, the outdoor flower quickly became biomass and kind of cheaper flower, cheaper quality or lower quality. Um, we all know that that's not the case. There's many farms out there that produce a very high quality outdoor product. It's just really hard to do and it's not as well known. So when we entered the market, we put together a team that, like I said, has already been growing outside for over 10 years. So we assessed what is our value. And I know that today's market really focuses on THC when they consider quality. Uh, some visual and, and also how does it smell assessments are, are also made. But overall, it seems that the higher the THC goes, usually that quality meter goes up to and the less they care about the first two. But longer term, I think what we're going to see is, is that it's really going to focus on a cannabinoid profile and terpene profile. And that's exactly what we've assessed from the beginning and we'll be ready for when we develop into that. So when we came to market, we said, hey, we're going to be premium sun grown. Everyone said, yes, yeah, settle down. I'm sure you will. Uh, but we came to the market. We said what we were going to do. We did it. We've held our, our quality and consistency to where in the first year we sold out of all of our flour and pre-rolls. Uh, now we have more demand than we have supply in our second year of sales, and we're anticipating the same as we go forward as we continue to um, to really watch our strains and develop our outdoor practices too. I don't know if Adam, do you, how do you think I missed there? Oh, no, I just wanted to touch on, um, so I think it goes back to the prohibition times um, when people would grow outdoor traditionally, it would be, you know, a couple plants in a cornfield, a 
plants in the woods. So it wasn't exactly areas that you wanted to go in and out of because you didn't want to know people to know like what you had going on back there. So now that we're able to grow on the commercial level, you know, full, fully legal, um, we actually are able to take care of and tend to the plants and give them the love that they need um, to perform how they want them to. So I would say that is like one of the biggest things to add is, you know, how we produce quality flour is we give the plants the love and attention uh, that they need. Um, as opposed to like a set it and forget it style that some of our, um, you know, some other growers may apply to outdoor flower. So. Yeah. The, just like any relationship, the more time and attention you give to it, uh, the better that relationship is going to be, uh, goes for people and plants, I believe. So, um, <clears throat> Will, can you describe your team, how you found them and how you keep them? Yeah, so I would describe our team, or everybody's heard me describe them as a team of um, individual uh, expertise and overlapping experience. And I will say right up front that super blessed and honored to have been able to put this team together. Um, really what it's come down to is I think that this world is all about people and communication. So as we were starting to develop Grasshopper Farms, we started to talk to folks and see who's interested. Of course, really referrals makes a big part of what we're doing here as well, because existing positive relationships help to build and grow a team as well. And then from building the team and really understanding like what kinds of you know, experience do we need on the team, retention's a big deal. So you know, in our company, we have a 98% retention rate. Um, people are always coming to us and saying, hey, where do you source people from? I'm like, we, we don't need to. We're full. We're at capacity. We're not hiring right now. Uh, we have that good problem, though, because we do our best to take care of people. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Uh, of course, we're going to have this standard bickering or gripes that any organization is going to have out there or family, for that matter, is going to have out there. But we don't have people coming in and leaving because I think that we do our best to the best of our ability to take care of our people with the resources that we have. And then we're continuing to expand that, too. So when we started the company, we didn't have benefits, right? So, so now we're incorporating benefits. So that's just one easy example of where we're continuing to take care of people beyond like we're set and we're good today. It's like, hey, how are you feeling today? Or what, what kinds of things in the future might you need? And so I, I think it kind of put those things together and really it's, it's um, afforded us the opportunity to build an amazing team, have a great retention rate all around. Yeah, I think when employees feel more like family than just hired help, uh, that definitely gives people, you know, a sense of wanting to stay rather than looking over the fence at the next opportunity. So it sounds like you guys are doing it right. Um, so you guys have a lot of smart pots out in the field. Uh, why did you settle on the 100 gallon size and what kind of yields are you guys averaging in those pots? This is a great one for Adam. So, you know, I would say the reason why we settled on 100 gallon pots is we we had a goal in mind of what we were going to harvest out of our field. And in our experience, um, you know, the bigger the pot, the bigger the plant. So we went with, um, you know, kind of what we knew from our experience in the legacy market, um, as well as you have to think with these plants being outside, um, they are at you know, mother nature's whim. So we wanted to have a really hardy base on that plant. So like it doesn't physically blow over, um, and, and tip over. So we, it, we needed to have it a nice heavy base as well. Um, along with the hundred gallon size, uh, in, in terms of our choosing, um, it also allows us to not have to water every day. 
Um, as, as you know, smart pots are very breathable. Um, if we were to go with a 60 gallon size out here, we would, we would in fact have to water every single day unless, uh, we, we had a tremendous rainstorm or something like that. So that, that all contributed, um, as far as our selections for smart pots goes, um, we learned very early on in the legacy market days, um, the advantages to using, um, smart pots. Uh, when we examined root masses of plants that we had harvested, um, out of plastic versus the smart pots. Um, the difference in the root mass, uh, once you wash all the dirt off was completely night and day different. Um, you know, the, that it really seems to, um, help that root system, you know, expand beyond the pot by, you know, like sending it back within itself. So you get a much healthier root system. So for us, the, the choice of smart pots was easy. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll just, jump in and add one thing here. So when it comes to that that base, well, so let me just say two things. Number one is when transitioning from a legacy market into a commercial market, to me, it was really important to keep as many practices to translate as possible. So you're minimizing your change management as you are, because there's going to be big differences when you go from one market to the next. So that was really important too. On the weight of the base, um, what I can tell you is we did experience some catastrophic storms in Southwest Michigan and the rest too, but our market is Southwest Michigan. And some farms lost hundreds, if not thousands of plants. And in the same storm, we may have lost one to three plants. And you know, overall, some of it had to do with that basin and some of it had to do with that love that we come in afterward and tend to the plants after the storm too. So you put all these things together and it's really helped us out a lot to uh, develop a good methodology and keeping good, big, healthy plants. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, glad to, glad to hear that you guys uh, survived the storm, uh, literally, literally. So, are you guys growing uh, organically, synthetically, or is it a hybrid of the two? You want to take this, Will, or if you want me to take? It? No, no, go right ahead. Um, so, I, I would say the best way to describe uh, the our system would be that hybrid style. So, we we use inputs that are both OMRI certified, and we have some that aren't. Um, the nutrient line that we use has been around for a really long time. Um, and we feel like even the non OMRI listed components are still very good for a plant. Um, so it's, it's one of those things that we, we brought, definitely brought that over from the legacy market. We run very similar, uh, newt schedules, uh, as we did then. So. Nice. Nice. Um, any other brands that you guys wanted to, to shout out besides Smart Pots, or is that a proprietary secret sauce? Um, so, so I we we do use the Fox Farm nutrient line. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to tell you our exact recipe, but we do use Fox Farm uh, for most of our um, you know feeding for of the plants. Um, it's, it's a little bit of a hot button issue. Um, as Will knows, you know, we want to, you know, we want to be inclusive, but you know, we, um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly our, our director of cultivation would not like it if I shared our feeding schedule with you so that you knew that, but, um, Fox farm does a nice job of publishing a schedule. Um, so, um, you know, I would encourage you to, to try your own, um, recipe and, you know, so. Eric, I, I think this is one of the things in the industry, look, when, when this became an illegal thing to do, in addition to changing our growing techniques because we were forced into basements and barns, people then became very attached to their methodologies as well. And that's totally normal, right? Um, as we've come back into a legal market, though, I think now we have people holding on to their style as the best way to do it. Don't get me wrong. There's excellent ways of doing things and you don't need to share out your methodologies and all that stuff. Um, I do think, though, that 
there's a period that everybody I think understands. It's called a dialing in period. That's very much so applies to either your indoor, your greenhouse or your outdoor area. So even if we did give the exact recipe today, it's not going to work for the next person to the degree that they can just apply it and not think they have to go back to really, they have to love their plants. They have to take care of their plants and pay attention to their plants and say, what do they need? So even our own recipe, we adjust because we're testing things all the time and making sure that we understand what's going on with the soil, what's going on with the air, what's going on with the water, what's going on with the plants, what's going on with the other contaminants that are around us. And all of that stuff makes us change things daily. Um, I do like to say that I believe that everything in this industry can be learned and depending on the amount of effort you put into it, the truly proprietary nature of this industry is the team. And I think you could say that of a lot of industries as well. So if you build a good team, you're gonna come out with a good product, I think would be what I would say. Um, so I'm glad that we can shout out Fox Farms, but I will give the team 100% of the credit of being able to apply that and other things that we use to be able to grow our, our beautiful plants and be able to offer quality and consistency with our supply. Awesome. I love that answer. Um, so how many strains are you guys focusing on? Does that change from year to year? And how are you determining what you're growing? So um, I'll start on this and then I'm going to follow. But really what we did is we brought in the existing strains that the team was already familiar with. So in the first year, we were playing around with around 30 strains, not knowing which ones of them are going to be totally commercial because it was first year. Right. So in that sense, as we moved into second year, we really had 17 strains that were commercial strains and 28 strains that were R&D strains. And therein lies the strategy going forward. So our farm has 20 beds. 19 of those beds are commercial beds and one bed is an R&D bed. So in that last year, when we did 17 strains of commercial strains, and then we did 28 strains of R&D strains, that was for evaluation of which strains do we want to bring in the next year. And it doesn't mean necessarily that we go full commercial with them. It could also mean that we're just going to keep that genetic around to where we'll deploy it when it makes sense, too. Because there will be a strategy of one, there'll be certain strains that we have every single year. There'll be some strains that we have in limited quantity some years. And then there'll be some strains that they come out certain years as well. And those are kind of be the three groups. So this year already, we're going to have a certain number of commercial strains again. We'll have a whole bunch of R&D strains as well. And we'll continue that evaluation period as we go forward so that we can pay attention to the market. But really, I think that what's most exciting to me, at least, is really preparing for that future market of a really healthy um, cannabinoid profile, terpene profile, and really looking for those terpenes to be well above the two and a half, even up above four percent. Um, as we understand the terpenes better and people become more educated and are seeking effects, they're really going to start to uh, like look at things beyond THC and look of the bud. They're going to really need to look at what's the profile of it so that I can actually get the effects that I know work for me in the same way that somebody might be more of a Tylenol person versus an ibuprofen person. You know, they, they know what works for them. We'll see probably the same thing happening with strains in the future, I think, too. Yeah, uh, just to, to touch on that. Um... I think that we have an added layer, um, you know, as well touched on that dialing in period for all different facilities, whether indoor or outdoor. Well, in my experience in growing is you have winners that do great inside that don't necessarily do well outside. Um, so we are always constantly evaluating new strains. As Will said, this year, I think we're going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 production strains. And then we're going to have somewhere between 20 and 30 strains in our R&D bed, um, giving them a real full go test outside to see how they perform um, compared. Um, you know, some strains just aren't meant to be grown outside. They don't, you know, they don't finish right. Um, so it leaves you with an inferior product. So we're not trying to grow more of that. We want we want really nice stuff that, you know, looks good, tastes good, tests good, smokes good. So. 
Yeah, awesome. And <clears throat> you had mentioned that you want your uh, terpene levels uh, above two and a half percent. What uh, are you guys averaging on your flowers there? Yeah, so right now we're averaging between two and four percent strain dependent. So some of them are even above four percent. Wow. Um, but that's our that's our general range. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, yeah. I I definitely can attest. You know, and I'm sure a lot of people watching this can attest that if something smells and tastes excellent, it works better. Uh, THC level is not the end all be all. I mean, it might get the job done to, to some degree, but it's, you need the entourage effect of the terpenes. Um, hundred percent agree on that. So I'm glad you said that too. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I'm, I'm glad that you said that, Eric, because, you know, the entourage effect is something that we are going to have to pay more attention to. And to the extent that we people understand that terpenes are definitely tied to what we smell and what we taste, that's going to help with that evaluation right there. And so for your veterans out there, I think they know that. And that's why the smell test really actually can be viable for some folks. But a lot of folks are going to just need to see some some numbers. Right. And right now, everybody publishes the THC. I think pretty much everybody puts CBD down because it mostly is a requirement. But beyond that, there isn't a requirement for other cannabinoids or other terpenes or any terpenes for that matter. We publish our terpenes on our product because we do think it's important as we move forward here. So I, uh, hopefully as people get more familiar with that, they'll start to pay attention to that. Right now, the higher that THC number goes, the less they care about the other stuff. But I think pretty soon they're going to find out that there's a lot of products that are out there between 25 and 30 percent on smokable flour, but they'll have less than you know half a percent on the terpene side. And they might be getting like some sort of like blasted effect, but they're not getting the therapeutic effects that this plant is really built for. And as people become more mature in this market and they understand the effects better, I think that that number is going to be really important to do. And the folks who aren't producing uh, a better terpene profile are going to find themselves having to do a lot of investigating for, you know, their pheno hunting for products that they can produce with those terpenes. I, if I may, it's, this is almost akin to the um, craft beer story. When craft beer first kind of hit the nation, it was all about the ABV, right? Um, so alcohol by volume, right? So that percentage. And what happened was, is you'd go into a bar and you'd see like a 14% and you're like, yeah, I got to try that. And you didn't know what kind of beer it was. You probably didn't even know the name of it. It was the novelty of trying a high ABV. But sure enough, as time went on, Everybody started to like drift away from the ABV percentage and what kind of a beer is it? What other hints in there? How did they make it? What's the story behind the company? And nowadays, the last thing you usually see is the ABV. I think that's going to happen here. I think we're going to see that THC, while important, is not going to be the number we focus on in the future. And we're going to be paying attention to other things. And I think that as we get ready for that, we are prepared for that already right now. And we will continue to be ready for that. Um, and I hopefully other people will follow suit, too, because the number one responsibility we have in this industry is education. And so the more that we can talk about this and share it with consumers and other uh, operators within the industry as well, uh, the more we all benefit together. Yeah, 100%. I, I, I also I like what you said about, um, you know, encouraging people to look and smell the flower that they are going to try because i do think there is something i i don't know if you can find it on a test sheet uh to i think if that if people pick it out they tend to have a more pleasant experience because if you like the way it smells and tastes um i don't know if it's psychological um but it just seems like you have a more pleasant experience with that that product 
100%. And uh, as somebody who kind of grew up to some degree in the California medicinal market, <clears throat> one thing that I really loved was, you know, some uh, the store owner opening up a big jar, you can stick your face in there. And, you know, the nose knows and you usually go with whatever smells the best. And as the rec market has, you know, gone to individually packaged uh, containers that you can't open until you purchase it, having those terpene, you know, profiles and, and numbers listed on the packaging, I think is definitely uh, going to, you know, help you guys in the long run. And, and it's proven that. So uh, awesome to see that you guys are focusing on uh, quality over just THC numbers. So um, next question, uh, Michigan has seen some swings in wholesale flower prices, just like all the other uh, recreational states have. How has this affected grasshopper farms? And what do you guys think is a fair price so that producers are profitable and consumers are happy? Yeah, so, so I think there's multiple facets to, to this question. And so it kind of starts with something you actually just ended with saying, and what is our focus? Our focus is on quality and consistency, right? And we understand what our identity and core competency are. So our identity is we produce premium sun-grown flower. And our core competency is we are a single season outdoor grow. And when you understand those two things and then you say, okay, now we have to execute by doing quality and consistency, uh, that kind of leads us into part of the answer here. Um, also, because we're focused on quality, we didn't max out on like our licenses or our plant counts. So when we originally got licensed, we have 160 acres, but we built out 40. We were given eight licenses, which would have been 14,000 plants, but we only accepted four licenses for 7,000 plants. And we only actually planted around 5,000 plants. I say these numbers because by not planting every acre and not leveraging every plant that they gave us in Michigan, Michigan being a plant count state instead of a canopy state, I think that that allowed us to focus on the thing that we do think is most important, which is quality and consistency. So as we entered the market, we entered the market in year three. And that's really important to understand because years one and two are usually always wonky anyway, because supply and demand are upside down. And so that causes, of course, your high prices per unit, depending on what it is that you're making. So for us being in flour, we do it by, by pound. So um, as we entered the market, as we wrapped up our harvest, there was a market event that happened in November, November 17th of 2021, to be very specific, in which there was a massive recall of $250 million worth of product. And so in, in an instant, everybody who had distributed that product out there lost their minds thinking that all those revenues were completely gone. And then the state actually published, here's the steps to reintroduce that product into the market if it passes these things, okay? So then what happened was, is everybody was racing to get that that product that was frozen back out into the market. And it was already competing with the product that was going out into the market naturally anyway. So what a lot of people did was they engaged in something that's super common and it's the worst thing to do. And it's that competitive race to the bottom that everybody hears of a total cliche, but it's a really, really bad business decision to make because once you start lowering your price, you don't go back up. You've just set your new price is how it works out. So we had to kind of find, you know, where are we going to be in this? And Outdoor flower suppliers were finding them selling their prices around between 250 and 450 last year and this year. And, and I, I understand in a lot of cases how that might be the right price for some folks who have a maybe a different quality than we're offering. 
But during that exact same time, our pricing has been between $500 and $700 a pound, depending on the quantity and what strains they're buying. And we've been successful holding that price the whole time. I believe that the reason we've been successful in that is because we've simply stuck to our mission and we've delivered to our customers who are retailers and consumers alike what it is we said we'd do. Premium sun-grown flower, there's quality, there's consistency. So as we look at like what's the fair price, so that's that's a little harder to answer. Uh, I do believe that we're really close to it right now. Um, I think it could hover somewhere around five to seven hundred dollars for the outdoor flower that maintains some quality and consistency. If I look at like a Colorado market that has the longest established adult use market out there, they're not far off from where we are right now. And so I, I think that we're we're kind of almost there. The reason why we really won't know, and this is going to be state specific until federal changes happen, is because we haven't seen the top of the market yet in Michigan. Michigan publishes the demand and sales each month, and we just haven't seen that ceiling yet. So once we do get to that ceiling and there's a shakeout of the existing operators within the market and what they're producing, we might start to figure out what that is. But I think at the end of your question, it's really important to understand that retailers and suppliers have to work together to make sure that they are both making margins that offer their business to stay afloat, meaning they can pay all of their bills and operating costs, plus they can pay fair wages to all of their employees, plus they have to have a sense of profitability as well. And if there's anybody out there who's really trying to gouge one or the other, so supplier trying to sell it too much or retailer who's demanding too deep of a discount, they're just disadvantaging each other in a market where they should be working together. And I'll kind of end this by saying that I don't really believe that there's actually needs to be competition per se in the market right now. There's plenty of business for everybody who runs a viable business. So there's a reason why gas stations are across corners from each other. Fast food restaurants are next to each other. They can coexist together. And in fact, where they're done correctly, they actually increase business for each other. Right. So I think that if we work together in this market, we don't engage in kind of these um bad business practices of things like the race to the bottom or bad competitive business activities that we'll all be good together and we'll get to a fair market value, whether it is your supplier selling or your retailer selling and figure out what that wholesale price is for each other. Nice. Makes perfect sense. Um, knowing that smart pots last darn near forever, uh, you won't need to replace what you've got for quite a while. Um, do you have any expansion plans for either growing or extracting? And, and you kind of answered a little bit earlier, you know, by mentioning that you kind of have that extra space that you didn't use all, all of your space and, and plant counts. So what does the future hold for you guys? Yeah, so I'll start it with the uh, the viability of the long-term product for smart pots, and then Adam can fish it up. But you know, in, in Michigan, there's one of the reasons why the smart pots are so awesome for us is we also have a living soil strategy as well. So it really allows us to retain the soil there, work with the soil. If we didn't have smart pots, we could not do that. That breathability is tremendously important when it comes to that living soil strategy. So that's kind of maybe part of the answer there. Um, the other part of the answer is. You know, we're in a time in Michigan right now where we've, we've come to the market. We said, here's what we're going to try to do. And then we did it. And so now we have enough demand for us to go ahead and expand further. Right. So I said in the beginning how we didn't take all the licenses and we didn't use all the plant count. Well, now we've done an analysis of the market, both customers and the retail suppliers or the retailers who are working with. And we've said, OK, now we know how much that we could expand to just to fit our existing sales right now. That's it. 
And so what we're going to do now is we'll move into our next 40 acres here, probably next year. And we will use 100% smart pots down there as well so that we can continue to benefit from, again, those protective bases and the living soil strategy and really taking care of the plants there. But I don't think it stops there. The, the model that we built in Michigan has been successful. And so our job really is taking care of people. And we put together a great team together. I, I, somebody once said that they, they realized one day that they weren't actually in the business that they were in, which I think was like a land development or something. They were actually in the people development business. And I love that saying, and I say that about Grasshopper Farms too. I think we could take our team and do a lot of different things with these teams. And I've taken teams on special operations missions in the military, and I would take this team in to do that too, because we get the job done. But what I want to do is I want to create more jobs for people. So what we've done is we've applied for licenses in other states. Right now, we're currently building in New Jersey. And so we're going to be one of the early suppliers within the New Jersey market. We've already been given a conditional license there. We're working towards our full licensure there, too. And I believe that if we continue to operate how we are, we might be one of the first fully outdoor farms in New Jersey as well, also using SmartPot technology. But, you know, New Jersey and Michigan, the, the climates, although you might not believe me, I can show you the data where the climates of these two specific properties are actually very similar. Let's talk about a climate completely different, and that would be Colorado. So we're planning on going to Colorado as well, and we might even be out there this year. And while a lot of people go and ground in Colorado, we'll be using SmartPot technology out there as well for a lot of the reasons that I already explained. Um, and then at the end of the day, the farms can actually support each other. So let's say that one farm finds that there's a technique with the smart pots that actually is uh, keeping the living soil even better. They'll be able to share that with the other farms and they'll be able to benefit from that too. And of course the feedback would be go beyond the smart pots, but I'm using the smart pot as an excellent example of a transfer of information and best practices. So I, what I'll say with the with the reusability of the smart pots is is I find you know in uh, my personal growing experience is that that soil just gets better and better each year as more of our amendments break down in the in the bio you know the um, the Benny backs do their thing and um, turn those amendments into you know plant absorbable nutrients that soil just gets richer and richer every year so. Um, you know, it's definitely nice having something outside that we can reuse over and over again. That goes, again, one of the reasons why we, we are outside like we are is, uh, you know, the sustainability factor of growing marijuana outside um, as opposed to growing it inside. Um, it's just a little bit better for the environment. So if whatever we're able to reuse and, and not dispose of um, is, a, is a winner in our book. Love it. Love it. Um how can uh, people follow you guys on social media and, you know, do you guys have a website? Uh, how, how can Michiganders uh, get in touch with y'all? Yeah, that's a great question. And look, we've actually had hits coming from not just all over the country, but all over the world at this point where we're finally realizing that we're doing something like other people think is pretty cool. We think it's pretty cool. We've always said that, right? But now some other people are telling us that too. So I think the easiest way to get to us is to go to grasshopperfarms.com. We have a lot of people who go there. We actually are one of the facilities that offer tours to anybody who signs up for it. There's no cost to it. You just sign up online and you can come out to the farm and take a tour. Very much recommend if you come out in August, September. Um, that's when these plants turn into trees and it looks a lot like a Christmas tree farm and it's pretty amazing to walk the farm and get a tour of the whole operation. From there, you can find us also on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter under Grasshopper Farms. The links are on grasshopperfarms.com. And we try to do a very good job of sharing our day-to-day -day life in what we're doing on all four platforms. 
we, we also shout out the opportunities that we're doing, whether it be vendor days or if we're going to be at a particular convention. Uh, it happens to be that next week we'll be at Benzinga in Florida, where we'll be kind of sharing what we're doing with the folks who are going to be in attendance there. And we were at uh, MJ BizCon last year. We'll be there this year as well, uh, where we're just trying to be a part of, like I said, the education and expansion of this amazing industry. Um, we have we have everything on there from emails to signing up online and phone numbers. Um, very reachable for anybody who is interested, wants to talk to us. We're here for you. Yeah, awesome. Um, it's been really uh, great getting to know you guys and learning about your operation. Uh, sounds like you guys just have a really solid foundation uh, in the industry. And uh, I know we'll be seeing y'all for years to come and I can't wait to meet you guys hopefully at MJ biz or one of the other conferences uh, that we do. So on that note, uh, Will and Adam, thank you so much for your time. This has really been a great interview. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. It's been a pleasure.